Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey folks, before we get to today's episode, I have an exciting announcement. I have a book coming out. It's coming out within a couple of weeks. In fact, the 18th of February is the release date. The book is being published by McGill Queen's Press, and the title is Civilians at the Sharp End, First Canadian Army Civil Affairs in Northwest Europe, 1944 to 1945. It is a first-of-its-kind look at the forgotten branch of the Canadian Army in Northwest Europe. This branch is called Civil Affairs. Basically, the men of civil affairs, their job was to help quickly rehabilitate and reconstruct war-torn populations in the immediate aftermath of liberation. The hope was that the quicker allied civilian populations could get on their feet, the faster they could contribute to the war effort. The book looks at civil affairs work in northern France, in Belgium, in the Netherlands, and then it takes us into Germany, where all of a sudden civil affairs becomes military government and a whole host of problems present themselves as the Canadians are now conquerors, not liberators. There has never been a book published that looks at this aspect of the Canadian war experience, and it hopefully provides a more clear window into how Canadian soldiers and the Canadian army dealt with civilian populations. The book is now available for pre-order on Amazon, and the link is on our Facebook page and will be posted on all our socials. It would mean a great deal to me to have the support of the CCH community and to try to get this book on the bestseller list for Canadian nonfiction. So thank you one and all. Thank you for your support and enjoy today's episode. Welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Probably heard this song before. 
It is an iconic anti-war song, an iconic John Lennon and Yoko Ono moment, and was released to the world during a tumultuous time in North America. The very unpopular Vietnam War was raging. Young people throughout the continent were protesting not only America's involvement in that war, but protesting the status quo of North American society. Feminism, civil rights, indigenous activism, Quebec separatism, the counterculture, hippies, rock and roll, the sexual revolution, narcotics experimentation, all of that characterized the nearly chaotic milieu of the late 1960s in Canada and the U.S. In the midst of all of this, the newly and controversially married John Lennon and Yoko Ono brought their peace tour to Canada. This tour saw them carry out the famous Montreal Bed-In. This tour saw them attempt to meet the Canadian Prime Minister and even to try to convince the American public to embrace new methods of peace activism and in the end saw them create one of the most iconic peace songs in music history. This is Season 6, Episode 10, Give Peace a Chance, John and Yoko Come to Canada. Today's book recommendation is called John Lennon, Yoko Ono, and the Year Canada Was Cool by Greg Marquis. This was published by James Lorimer and Company in 2020 and pretty much encompasses the very interesting story of John and Yoko's travels to Canada during the late 60s, early 70s, while also giving us a sense of the counterculture movement in Canada at the time. Now, the 1960s in Canada like throughout much of the world, was a tumultuous decade. The counterculture movement, which had begun in the United States, had emigrated into Canadian cities and was embraced by Canadian youth. By the latter half of the decade, every urban center had its hippie hangout, where young people engaged in exploration of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle that defined that generation. At the same time, along with the spread of the counterculture movement, was a growing social activism amongst much of Canada's youth. Now, much of this activism was inspired by events in the United States. By the late 1960s, universities and youth groups across the country were protesting America's involvement in the war, the proliferation of nuclear weapons, issues related to the environment, and to a lesser degree, there was a growing awareness of the plight of black Canadians and First Nations in Canada. While the Canadian government was far more ambivalent to the growing social activism, Canada welcomed thousands of draft dodgers from the U.S., and for many, Canada was seen as the land of peace and prosperity while the United States was seen as this place of discord, violence, and corruption. As well, the 1960s was a decade of great change in music. The British invasion had brought the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and others to North American radios. As well, there had been a shift 
from pre-packaged pop stars to singer-songwriters seeking more authentic forms of musical expression. By the late 1960s, popular music had transitioned from glossy, fun, upbeat, polished songs to raw, real, electrified songs, many of which spoke directly to the counterculture movement and the social concerns of young music consumers of the day. In many ways, these currents of activism and musical change collided in John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. By 1968, John Lennon, still with the Beatles, was a polarizing figure. He had gone through a very public split from his first wife, and it was clear that he was having an extramarital affair with Yoko prior to the official divorce. At the same time, John was dealing with a drug charge when his London apartment was raided by police and cannabis resin was discovered. Yes, cannabis resin. Yoko Ono was also polarizing. She had emerged from an experimental artistic community in New York, and many diehard Beatles fans believed that she was the cause for a growing rift in the band, particularly between John and Paul McCartney. This rift was becoming more and more public by the late 1960s. Together, even John Lennon and Yoko Ono's activism was controversial. As a couple, the two began their public efforts for peace almost immediately after they were married. Their first bed-in for peace, a play on the popular protest strategy of sit-ins, occurred in Amsterdam. Surprisingly, they publicly rejected the growing radicalism and what they identified as elitism of many peace movements and argued that a cultural revolution was needed whereby peace was promoted in the same way that the media and culture had promoted violence and war. The popular mediums of the day could be used to stimulate this cultural revolution, and peace movements should seek to engage with various elements of the establishment as opposed to rejecting them outright. Now, despite John Lennon being one of the most popular musicians of the day, and perhaps one of the most well-known figures of the day, John and Yoko's vision of peace frustrated people on both sides of the growing social divide. The Montreal Bed-In was not part of any sort of long-term strategic plan by the pair. In fact, the decision to go to Canada was made quite last minute after the two and Yoko's five-year-old daughter Kyoko were denied entry into the United States because of John's drug possessions conviction back in England. So, the family flew from the Bahamas to Toronto 
and basically devised their plan while on the Air Canada flight. Their strategy, as part of their broader mission for peace, was to use Canada as a staging platform to speak to the media of the world, but particularly to the media of the United States, a country obviously deeply embroiled in the Vietnam War. As Lenin stated, he wanted to give President Richard Nixon acorns, which Nixon could plant for peace. Whether Nixon wanted these acorns was irrelevant, of course. Now, Canada in Lenin's opinion, was far superior to both the U.S. and Great Britain due to what he saw as its more humane and welcoming society, a society of many cultures living peacefully together, a society that welcomed draft dodgers from the U.S., a society that did not go to war in Vietnam. Now, certainly, Canada was not involved militarily in the Vietnam War, something that Lenin obviously favored. But one has to assume that Lenin was unaware of the thousands of Canadians that were serving in the U.S. military in Vietnam. In fact, 40,000 Canadians would serve in Vietnam by that war's end. Nor was he probably aware of Canada's complicity in making and providing Agent Orange to the U.S. war effort. Agent Orange was the corrosive and carcinogenic chemical agent used frequently by U.S. forces to destroy the jungle canopy used as camouflage by enemy soldiers. And it wasn't just that Canada was a sort of media backdoor into the United States for John. It was also that in many ways, Canada was a media side door into Great Britain where John felt he was treated quite poorly by the British press. Effectively, John would be attempting to utilize Canada's place in the historic North Atlantic Triangle to access media outlets and thus people in all three nations. Finally, while in Canada, Lenin could also continue to push for his case for permission to re-enter the United States. It's interesting to note that another Canadian attraction was Canada's newest Prime Minister, Pierre Trudeau. Trudeau, much like his son decades later, came to power on a wave of celebrity. Trudeau was a well-dressed, well-traveled, well-spoken, single bachelor, and in many ways embraced a young, progressive, cosmopolitan energy that gave him celebrity status. Things like wearing flowers on his clothes or practicing yoga were seen by the public as signs that Trudeau was more sympathetic to the counterculture movement emerging in North America and elsewhere. Now, it should be made very clear that much of this was simply appearances. Trudeau was a middle-aged man by the time he became prime minister, and while he certainly achieved a celebrity status like no prime minister before him, calling him an ally to the counterculture movement would be disingenuous. Regardless, terms like Trudeau-mania were used to describe his popularity in the early years of his prime ministership, obviously carrying connotations of Beatlemania that had swept North America several years before. John was certainly interested in meeting with the Prime Minister, and there were hopes that such a meeting could be arranged. In the meantime, however, 
John and Yoko and Kyoko were staying at the King Edward Hotel in Toronto, conducting media scrums and meeting with a variety of different people while they planned their next move. Both knew that a bed-in was their next step, and they asked Toronto-based music reporter Richie York where he thought the best place for the bed-in would be, and York recommended Montreal. Unlike Toronto, which was emerging as Canada's corporate capital, Montreal still maintained a diverse, artistic, cosmopolitan flavor. Thus, Montreal was chosen as the site, and by the time the family and their entourage escaped the King Edward Hotel, the crowd had become so large they were forced to flee via the fire escape. Folks, I just want to take a quick second to let you know that we rely exclusively on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So, for instance, if you want to donate five bucks for every episode we publish, Patreon allows you to set that up, and it is really easy. We survive exclusively on those donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page, Spotify, Apple Podcast, and other platforms, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy, and thank you to all who have donated. We could not keep doing this without you. And now back to a regularly scheduled program. The family arrived in Montreal on May 25th, where they headed straight to the Queen Elizabeth Hotel on René Levesque Boulevard, back then it was Dorchester Boulevard, and were given the keys to Suite 1742. The plan was for the couple to start their bed in immediately, and for several days they would allow media into the room from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Quickly, the room filled up with film crews, reporters, photographers, fans, pilgrims, religious figures, celebrities, musicians, comedians, TV personalities, and even two disc jockeys broadcasting their radio program from the suite. Yet it wasn't uh, just a free-for-all as sometimes portrayed. Access to the suite was controlled, and many of the celebrities who arrived did so because of personal invitations from John and Yoko. The CBC was a constant presence in the suite, both in English and French, as were other Canadian, American, and global broadcasters. Dozens, if not hundreds of interviews were given over the course of that week. Many of them were focused around Lenin and Yoko's vision for peace, a form of tactical nonviolence inspired by Gandhi. The celebrity couple didn't just meet with reporters, but with activists, draft dodgers, hippies, youth leaders, a rabbi, a Quebecois separatist, local television and news elites, even infamous LSD advocate Timothy Leary was hanging around. An invitation was even sent out to Prime Minister Trudeau, and though while he was interested in meeting the couple, Trudeau would only do so if it fit within his busy schedule the meeting would actually never occur. One of the more heated exchanges occurred between John and Yoko and American cartoonist Al Cap. 
Cap clearly challenged John and Yoko on their bed-in and their general positions on peace, and things got a little bit heated. That's well, precisely what I'm doing about it. Why? Why? Now, now, you people have a home in London. Are you permitting people to come in and defecate on the rugs, smash the furniture, and beat you up? We don't agree with violence. Then the why, why do you want them to do it at Berkeley? We don't want them to do it at Berkeley. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be delighted with any conversation. Okay. I, I, you know, I'd like to add to what you said about John Byers. It's good to just open tea or something. I can see why you want peace. God knows you can't have much from my own observation. Oh, exactly the same mind. reason. Yeah, but and exactly the same reason much of this is happening too, if the truth be told. But if Do you think Martian... I couldn't earn money by some other way, by sitting in bed for seven days, taking shit from people like you? Uh, I, could, uh, I could write a song in an hour uh, and earn no, more no, money. Now, undoubtedly, the most iconic moment of the bed-in was not his spat with Al Cap, but it was the creation of the anti-war song, Give Peace a Chance. John had written it on May 30th and sought to record and perform it as a large group the next day. Something like 40 people were present the evening of May 31st when the song was played and performed numerous times over. Tommy Smothers of the famous Smothers Brothers, Petula Clark, the singer on the massive 1964 hit Downtown, and a host of other people were all involved in the collective musical production. The session was recorded by Montreal jazz musician and engineer Andre Perry, who later enhanced some of the tracks in his own studio and even added more voices, all francophone, mind you, to the chorus, including popular Quebecois rock and roller Robert Charlebois. Interestingly, Perry played for John the original version and then the enhanced version, with John choosing the enhanced one for release. Lennon also gave Paul McCartney a writing credit on the song, despite McCartney having nothing to do with it. Lennon, in fact, explained he gave Paul the credit out of guilt for recording what was effectively his first independent solo single, Oddly enough, Lennon did not give writing credits to Yoko Ono, a regret he openly admitted years later. Much to the surprise of everyone, when the five-minute song was released as a radio single, it reached number one in the United Kingdom, number eight in Canada, and number 14 in the United States. Not only that, the song quickly became an iconic protest anthem and has been played by numerous artists of every generation. When the Montreal bed-in wrapped up, John and Yoko and Kyoko headed to Ottawa, where they held a peace conference on June 3rd at the University of Ottawa. Again, John hoped to be able to meet the Prime Minister, but to no avail. John and Yoko were even driven to the Prime Minister's residence on Sussex Drive, even knocking on the front door, but Trudeau was not home. The lone Mountie guarding the residence was given a note and a flower for the Prime Minister from the celebrity couple. The closest they would come to meeting Trudeau was that flower and that note. The pair then traveled back to Toronto, briefly visited Niagara Falls, where they were swarmed by fans and had to cut their visit short, and finally late on the 5th of June, Lenin, Yoko, Kyoko, and their entourage 
boarded a plane at Pearson Airport and returned to London. The peace trip in Canada was over. Measuring the success of the pair's activism in Montreal is difficult, but it's clear that it didn't produce any substantial change in the immediate aftermath. Easily, the most iconic and perhaps the most significant contribution to come out of all of it was the popular protest song, Give Peace a Chance. While Lenin may have never expected that a bed-in in Montreal would produce a song which would come to define so many protest movements, that is exactly what happened. A song about peace during a time of war, written, performed, and recorded in room 1742 of the Queen Elizabeth Hotel. An iconic song emerging from a brief, iconic cultural moment for Canada. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. Thank you for tuning in, and stay cool. Stay cool.